made Yes And Cafe, a podcast where we explore, learn, and create with ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Yes And is the powerful, intentional, and creative practice of building with other people. The name comes from improvisational theater. So what is it? One, paying attention. Two, affirming. And three, building on what others give you. That's it. Yes And. I'm Nadja. And I'm Omar. And we're broadcasting from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Dr. Frank Gilliam is beginning his sixth academic year as Chancellor of UNC Greensboro. During his tenure, UNCG has surpassed a record 20,000 students, grown its endowment, research enterprise, and overall facilities and campus infrastructure significantly increased its fundraising, and elevated the presence, reputation, and real-world impact of the largest university in the North Carolina Triad region. Prior to his appointment, Chancellor Gilliam served as Dean of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs for seven years and was a longtime UCLA Professor of Public Policy and Political Science. His research focused on strategic communications, public policy, electoral politics, and racial and ethnic politics. Dr. Gilliam received his BA from Drake University and his MA and PhD in political science from the University of Iowa. Welcome, Chancellor Gilliam. Hello, Dr. Ali. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the Yes and Cafe podcast. We're very excited about this conversation. I'm going to kick us off with a question, and then we'll have Professor Chet come in. What has it been like being chancellor of a major public university during the COVID-19 crisis and the recent resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement? A very big question. Well, one with a pretty simple answer. It has been an experience of decision-making under great uncertainty, which is something that's not necessarily the hallmark of universities in which much of the dynamic is relatively incremental. So that has been interesting. And then while we were either in remote instruction or the academic year had ended, the Black Lives Matter movement started to resurge. And it was interesting because we weren't on campus, uh, although many of our students, faculty, and staff participated in various activities. So that was also different, to say the least. As you know, we're just back to -to face-to-face instruction and many folks being back on campus in the last couple of days. So this is a fall semester unlike any I've been a part of, and I've been either a professor or administrator now for over 35 years. So this is the strangest one, that is for sure. But it's been interesting being a member of the community with regards to Black Lives Matter. Yeah, it is certainly interesting times for all of us. I guess I think about this also in terms of your recent response to the Black Lives Matter movement. You made a statement that was really personal, and I personally really appreciated reading it, and I know much of our campus community did. Reading that got me thinking about whether you could talk a little bit about what it's like for you to balance that personal investment and the desire to share your own convictions and also the need to represent the institution and also the greater UNC system as chancellor. It's an interesting question, Professor Chuck, one that I struggled with in that particular case. In the main, I see my job as doing what's in the best interest of the institution, regardless of my own personal, political, or social convictions. 
That's what they pay me for. And so that's what I try to do in the most even-handed and rational way I can. But the Black Lives Movement resurgence was a once-in-a-generation event. And it was particularly personal to me as uh, I went to high school in Minnesota. The police, as my mother reminded me later, stopped me every year I came home from college within a block of my house and once in my parents' driveway. And then I have a 22-year-old son who's in Los Angeles. So I thought by telling that part of my personal story, and by the way, if you notice, I didn't start out the story that way. I started out, as I talked about, the roles and responsibilities of citizens with regard to American democracy and trying to highlight the agreement on a common set of values that a great majority of Americans have. And at the end of the essay, I, I talked about what it would take as a country and a community to address some of the issues. But in the middle, I talked about it being personal. So I had to break my fundamental position, I guess you'd call it, uh, of not injecting my own personal politics into it, too. And, and also, I felt there were a lot of students on our campus and faculty as well and, and staff who might be able to relate to what I had to say. Yeah, I think they really did. And I can certainly say I appreciate your willingness to do that. And I know, like you say, it is kind of walking that line of both representing the institution and talking about your personal experience. But I think a lot of us felt supported by your sharing of your personal experience. And we appreciate your leadership in what are, as you say, uh, definitely once in a lifetime, once in a generation events. COVID is a once in a lifetime event. And I keep trying to remind people of This isn't just an instance of a bad flu. This is a pandemic in the truest sense of the word. It is a virus that is lethal and highly transmittable. And I think sometimes people forget the seriousness of this. And so I talk to folks about, frankly, you remember this period for the rest of your lives. You'll be asked about it by your grandchildren. They're not going to ask you what you did on Wednesday, August 12th, but they're going to ask you, Grandma, where were you during that COVID pandemic and what happened? So we have to treat it as such, and it's true of the campus. Black Lives Matter is interesting. This has been a constant refrain in American life. It's one of the great political and social cleavages in the history of our country. And we've had debates about this, whether it's now or during the civil rights movement or during really the early part of the 20th century, uh, whether it was over slavery or integration. This has been a constant source of conflict. And this last chapter has been different because I think a growing number of people identify with the fact that systemic inequities persist. And while they persist for African-Americans most profoundly, they also affect a much broader group of Americans. I'm saying young people are beginning to realize that. It definitely feels like there is a culture shift in America. As you know, many more people have been coming out um, because the issues of violence uh, against Black people and poverty in the Black community affecting African Americans disproportionately has been a feature of American history. In fact, from the very foundations of the nation. 
I was thinking about this issue that you were talking about earlier in terms of your personal positions and your role as chancellor and how challenging it must be to try to navigate this. And I think you gave beautiful expression to that in your statement to the campus and the broader community. But I was wondering if we could maybe pan out and just hear what you think about the role of both universities helping to educate and enlighten people and also continuing to be, if you will, an institution that reconciles the basic contradictions of capitalism. It's an interesting feature that both its institution is space that can be liberating, can open up these studies it can also create barriers. It can create reconciliations of these profound contradictions of American society. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that because your scholarship, your role as a professor, your role as an administrator, as a university leader, in some ways speaks to this incredibly difficult position that you're in. And I think that we'd love to hear a little more about how you navigate that. How do you think about these in broad strokes? Well, with regards to the university, I find a couple of interesting things at play. The first is that the universities can serve as tools of social change in large part because they can, we can, open the doors to questions that aren't necessarily available or talked about in the public discourse. We can also be places where we can debate these things. And that is as it should be. At the same time, universities are not immune to systemic bias and indeed can instantiate over time a culture of bias across any number of dimensions. We're talking about race now, but we could be talking about gender or we could be talking about race and gender. or We could be talking about ethnicity or sexual orientation. In many instances, we've reified and stood up the biases. One of the things that kind of like this more recent version of the Black Lives Matter movement that I thought was profound and I think has really raised people's level of thinking is this distinction between not being a racist and being an anti-racist. I think that is a really interesting distinction because Well, I see the distinction being related to levels of analysis. So at the individual level, people can say, well, I am not personally racist, but be complicit in an oppressive system by their failure to act on their self-perceived lack of bias. So therefore becoming complicit in the discrimination embedded in American institutions. Now, I say all this with the caveat and recognition that the society has made progress. Let's be clear about that. Uh, I wouldn't be here. Omar, you wouldn't be here. Nadja, you wouldn't be there either. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. We just wouldn't, the three of us would not have been here. We wouldn't be having this conversation because we wouldn't be on this campus. No, if we were having it, it wouldn't be on this campus and it wouldn't be in these positions. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's just true, right? I mean, it's just a fact. And so I lift that point up to say that I recognize that there has been progress. However, it has not been wide scale. It has not been systematic. It has rather been idiosyncratic and the result of either what one friend of mine calls the efforts of the heroic individual and or the benevolent society in which it decides at some point or another to make some accommodations for some people, but not broadly. 
My point is to Omar's question that beauty of universities is that they can be a place of discovery, whether it's scientific discovery or personal discovery, and they can also be a space for real dialogue. At the same time, and this sort of, I think, Omar goes inherently to your question of the conflict between these roles. They can be institutions that reify existing structures of bias and discrimination. I love the question, well, how do you know it's because of bias? Well, it has to be pretty systemic for you to not be able to explain the numbers that you see in positions of power. And the gendering and racialization of power as you move up the status or influence hierarchy gets whiter and more male. It's just that simple. So either it's a great coincidence, right? There's only two explanations. Both of you know, in the sciences, you say, gee, what explains this phenomenon? Why are all the Nobel laureates men? Yeah. There's no brilliant woman ever in the history of the world. Right. Marie Curie, we can't leave her out, yeah, but, you know, yeah, she's the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, you want me to believe that, right? And if you were doing any sort of science and you looked at any evidence, you would say, gee, there's some collinearity here. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Right? The data are suggestive. The data, you know, and that's sort of the extremes. It's a very difficult position to defend. So I know uh, you're asking me a bit about what it's like being chancellor and think, Omar, you know this story that when I came here, I was sitting in a Starbucks and TV happened to be on. Jackie and I are sitting there and this news report is about me being the new chancellor. And it said that I was the 11th chancellor for UNCG and the first black chancellor of a non-HBCU in the history of the UNC system. And unfortunately, I let an expletive out. I was like, oh, <laughs> and it had never occurred to me. It had never occurred to me to ask back to our patterns. Uh, I just didn't assume that. So I was reminded of that the other day by a friend who's a longtime Greensboro resident and upstanding citizen type. He said, you know, people were running around calling each other saying they didn't believe it. And then when I got here, they were very suspicious of me as a black community because they figured I'd sold out to get the job. And I had to, they figured. And then when I got to know people, they said, oh, he's not going to last. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is what I've gotten myself into. Well, I don't know, but they said they were hear me speak when I, one of my friends now friends turns the other and says, oh, they're not going to keep him around for long. And pretty interesting story. Got in, I was on a Zoom call organized by my friend Val Smith, who's the president of Swarthmore. And it was 43 black college presidents, chancellors, and provosts from all over the country, actually, including the Caribbean. And we had a great Zoom call. And one of the panels was led by Ruth Simmons. I don't know if you know who she is. She'd been the president of Smith and Brown. Somebody raised the question about, well, how can you be your authentic self and be in these leadership roles? And we said, well, you have to understand they, they picked you because you were different, because you didn't represent the leadership. 
I raised my virtual hand and said, Ruth, with all due respect, and I do have a lot of respect for her, she's been a trailblazer. I said, I will introduce something I call the Obama effect. And she said, what's that? And I said, well, people thought they wanted Obama as president until they found out he was really black, that his wife was black, that his daughters were black, that his friends were black, that he played basketball, that he knew Jay-Z. Um, that's what I think has generated a lot of the antipathy towards him. And so my question to Simmons is, do they pick you because you're different? They think you're different, and then they come to find out, <laughs> no, you're really black. And what I told them and what I tell young people who ask me to be a mentor or whatever, I say the first thing I tell them is you have to be your authentic self. You have to be who you are. I had two very close friends, African-American men, commit suicide, faculty members who were trying to be what they thought everybody wanted them to be, and the pressure is just too great. Both very successful scholars, one a PhD from the University of Chicago, other a PhD from the University of Michigan, well-trained as they come, tenured at early age, full professor by 40, but they were trying to be what everybody thought they should be. And the pressure became too much. And I thought, I said, that will never be me. As I told the search committee when they hired me, this is what you're going to get. If you don't like it, I get it, you know. Uh, it's not your cup of tea, but if you do choose me, this is who I am. And I think that we need to get to a place where people can assert their authentic selves and still pursue excellence. For both of you, Nadja, I know you're in, you might be considered unconventional for the positions you're in, but I say to you, be your authentic self. I say to the students, be who you are. They can't take that away from you. And if you succeed, you succeed on your own terms. Now, at the end of the day, it's about excellence. But this is your point, Nadia, about Nobel Prize laureates. You're telling me <laughs> there's no excellent women in science? None? I mean, sure, there's tons of pursuit every day. So this has been interesting being in the South. I'd never set foot in North Carolina until I interviewed for this job. I've never lived in the South. I've spent very little time in the South. I was in Los Angeles for 30 years and say, oh, what's it like moving from L.A. to Greensboro? And I said, that's been easy. In fact, that's been great from a quality of life. You know, we love Greensboro compared to Los Angeles. The harder adjustment has been acculturating to Southern norms and mores. It's been tougher. to ask one more question before we bring in our student who Nadja will be introducing in a moment who's been listening. I want to go back to something about this issue that you were raising about being, you know, being authentic. And it's something that I think is challenging because as I understand, and I'm curious to hear what you think, people's authentic self changes over time given the new context. Actually, you do not want my authentic self all the time. Because there's some moments where it's not helpful, actually. And I was thinking about how one's authentic self develops and changes over time, but that there's something not core, because I don't believe there's a core to people because people are developing. But I was wondering how you think about that, because I think setting it up as you're either being your authentic self or you're being a fraud or you're being fake or you're selling out or whatever, actually, I don't think is developmental. It doesn't allow for people to grow and develop. I was just wondering if you could say a little something about that. 
But you and I disagree there. I think people's personalities are set pretty early in life. And I think if you think about your own children, their personalities, I know with my two kids, I mean, their personalities have not changed fundamentally from when they were one's this way, one's that way. I understand what you mean, people evolve. And I think one can become more strategic. That is, there's certain situations where I'm not going to say, I'm going to look at you like Omar, really. I'm not going to say what I really want to say. And by the way, I mean, obviously, you don't get to where I am by just walking out and doing some insane stuff. That isn't being authentic to me, but being true to yourself. And to your point, Omar, you, I guess, at some points, and this is where I, this would be in the evolutionary part. At some point, you're willing to trade off some of that authenticity to be instrumental, meaning to get where you want to go, right? But it's, I guess, a question of what's the proportion of trading off until you cross the line and you're not your authentic self anymore. What you learn as you get older, I think, is actually what your authentic self really is, I think, in large part. And I get your point. And at the college age, part of it is you're trying to figure it out. And you do stuff you probably deep down know you shouldn't be doing, but because you're insecure in who you are, you do it. And because you have bad judgment, you do it, right? Uh, And we have all done that. We've all been there. Some people have a better sense of themselves earlier than others. I always tell students, I've told them for years, quit worrying so much about trying to be cool and try to commit yourself to a passion. And if you do that, you will become cool. And speaking of students, we actually have a student on the line. Let me introduce him. So on the line is Luis Mejia Cruz. Luis is completing his master's degree in chemistry at UNC Greensboro. He's also a Greensboro undergraduate, a graduate of our chemistry program. He recently co-authored a publication that describes how a novel peptide produced by healthy skin bacteria helps keep us safe from invading bacterial pathogens. Really nice scientific work. Luis has been in North Carolina since the age of nine when his family immigrated here from Mexico. Besides doing excellent scientific research, Luis is also a great advocate for STEM education for young people. I've worked with him on multiple projects to introduce K-12 children to science through hands-on experiments. So it's really great to have Luis as part of our community. I know he's been listening in. Welcome, Luis. Do you have any questions or comments to share after listening to this conversation? Thank you so much for having me today. It's such an honor. I really enjoyed reading Chancellor's statement as well, but I have to admit I enjoyed this conversation. I guess I just want to mention, I really liked how the chancellor mentioned how I guess you wouldn't be here 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I guess I include myself in there, even though I wasn't alive. But given that (laughs) (laughs) there were multiple reasons, (laughs) uh, yeah, including myself, I I don't think I would have been here neither. And it just really takes me back to, I guess, to my own experience and growing up and trying to understand the history of the place where I live, which is Greensboro now. And it just puts everything to perspective of how important history is. And going back into the Black Lives Matter movement, talking to different people over the years, it made me realize how even I, as a Latinx student, I am connected to the Black Lives Matter movement, even though I am not Black. The history of the movement and back to the civil rights movement has impacted anyone that came after. It impacts our everyday lives and the privileges that we have now. Not only people that are part of a minority, but just everyone in the nation. 
And I think that's why it is very important to understand history and the history of the place where we live in. And that can actually help us understand our present and where we are headed. And I think it also connects to the new wave of Black Lives Matter movement and the pandemic situation. I think people are struggling um, left and right. And that has, I guess, created an even bigger spark in everyone else and has um, allowed us to connect even further and try to understand and try to learn and educate ourselves on certain matters that have been going on for a very, very long time in this nation. I'm probably going a little bit off track, but just some thoughts I had from that one of the Chancellor's statements. Luis, I really appreciate your thoughts. And of course, that's part of the reason I wanted you to be here today. I always appreciate what you bring to the conversation. And I'm so glad to have you here on our campus. And it makes me think how this was actually one of the things I wanted to ask Chancellor Gilliam. You allude to some of the challenges of adjusting to a new culture in the South. And as a transplant from the West Coast myself, I can totally relate to that. I think there's always challenges adjusting to any new place, and there are particularities to being in the American South that I'm sure are very different for you than there are for me. But nonetheless, I also think that being here at UNC Greensboro affords us some really interesting opportunities. And part of those opportunities are working with this really diverse student body at a minority-serving institution. And, you know, Luis is representative of that, as are many of our students. And I just wondered if you, Chancellor Gilliam, could speak to what the experience is of being at an institution like like that and what that's like for you and and how you see it and how you appreciate that. Louise, thank you for your comments. I'm glad you're on the show here. I'm going to sort of work my way around to that if if you don't mind, Nandra. So first, historically, and you probably know this because you're from the West Coast, I think one of the untold stories of the civil rights movement, particularly in California, was the role of Chicanos in fighting for civil rights, and uh, whether it was from the farm workers movement all the way up, and the collaboration between Black and Chicano groups. There's a thread that runs through it, in part, and this is to the second part of my comments and to your remark, Louise, when we talked about COVID, gee whiz, it just seems to be a coincidence that Blacks and Latinos and Native Americans have the highest proportional incidence of positive tests. Geez, it has to be coincidence. Or not. Or not. I, you said that. I didn't say that before. <laughs> yeah. I just raised the issue. And that then goes into this third leg of the stool, which is this multiracial, multi-ethnic campus. And we're actually diverse across a number of dimensions. It's not just race. It's not just ethnicity. It's not just sexual orientation. It's not just urban rural. It's not just military, non-military. It's not just gay, straight. It's all of those things. And the campus is not dominated by any one group, which is, I think, quite interesting. And we probably, the three of us, been on campuses that one group or another has dominated. Now, what's interesting about this is, and for the three of us as faculty, we probably have had a similar experience, which is you were the only one in your class. So, Nadja, I'm sure you were one of two or three women in the class in your advanced classes on chemistry. Same with you, Omar, Menacola. Same with me. So, not only was I one of the few in the classroom, if not the only one black in the classroom, when I left that classroom and walked out onto the campus, I didn't see anybody that looked like me. And what was interesting is I worked in a building, it was as a faculty member called Ralph J. Bunch Building, Bunch. There was a bust of him right by the elevator. It was a 11-story building. There was a bust of him 
And I, at one time, when, when black male enrollment at UCLA was down to around 4% or 3%, I wrote an op-ed that was in the LA Times called, Will Ralph Bunch's Bus Be the Last Black Man Standing at UCLA? And (laughs) some people didn't think that was funny. I did. It's pretty funny. But to get it to this campus, and to your point, Nadja, when students come out of our classes, they're likely to see somebody who looks like them. For example, our Latinx population has grown fourfold in the last four years. I think we've gone from 3 to 12%, something like that. You're more likely to see somebody, look, if you're black, you're more likely to see somebody. Well, look, if you're gay, you're more likely to see somebody who identifies like you. And that's the power and beauty of this campus. And we're all in one place. I wish we actually interacted more than we do, particularly socially, but I think it's a good step in this grand march towards freedom. And I think it's a thing that makes our campus vibrant and makes our campus really the future of North Carolina. The state's not going to get less diverse, I'll tell you that one, in the next 20 years. It's only going to get more diverse. And I was thinking about how diversity is not just the issue of the morality of having different people at the table who haven't been represented. But to go back to this issue of excellence, it seems to me that excellence is very closely tied to innovation. And innovation really can only meaningfully happen if one is exposed to different ideas, different kinds of experiences. The argument for diversity is grounded in a sort of a morality, a certain politic. But it's actually profoundly important to have diversity to create new ways of doing things, new approaches. And I think Luis is an example of bringing in all that he brings in. And it is truly an honor to have you on the show, Luis, because in some ways, it's because of what you bring that our future will be X, Y, or Z. And it's in a very concrete way. So diversity is not just a moral issue, it is a developmental creative force. And that's what I see, as you said, Chancellor Gilliam, the beauty of our campus and the power of it is that we've created this environment, this space of extraordinary diversity in all the ways that you described. And there's even more, you know, we talk about abilities and talk about age and all the differences that we're familiar with. So this has been a great conversation and we really, really appreciate your time, Chancellor and Louise, for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts. Are there any final thoughts that either of you have? Louise? I really enjoyed this conversation. I truly did. I guess I just want to say, I'm even though we are facing many struggles, um, all of us in one way or another, and some more than others, I am very optimistic about the future. And I think all of this will definitely bring great changes for the future. And I am very fortunate and excited to be part of this, whether it comes down to me being first generation college student, part of the Latinx community, and one of the few, um, I guess, members of Latinx community that are becoming scientists. I am very excited to come back to that community and not only Latinx community, but many communities in the near future to, uh, I guess, uplift and motivate and encourage others to do the same thing and even better better than I have done. So I'm, I'm very excited. And I want to thank you all. And I want to thank you, Chancellor Gillian, for this opportunity. Just let me say one thing. And I think Luis really made, just made the point, which goes to our central mission, which is the goal of blending access and excellence into a national model for how you do this. People are treating them as mutually exclusive. Luis has access to one of the, he's lucky guy to be in one of the best labs in the country. 
Uh, and while it's true, Nadja, you guys are big time. And the fact that he has access to your level of research and with his talent, he can achieve excellence. And it wouldn't happen if he didn't have the access. He says a first gen student. But then on the other hand, I'm sure in your lab, you have students who come from graduate students from great undergraduate backgrounds who, who are come to your lab because it's excellent. So these things do not have to exist in a mutually exclusive way. So that's what I'm most proud of about the university. And on top of it, I don't know all this stuff about invading bacterial pathogens. I'm just a political scientist, but I assume it makes life better for us. That's what also we're here for. That's what uh, research and discovery is about, is finding ways to address the challenges that confront us as a society and providing solutions, real-world ones. So to me, this podcast has just really been a tribute to what is great about this university and why I'm here and why I get up every day. And, and Luis, I love your optimism, man. I love it. that Hey, we'll get through this, and we're going to come out the other side, and we've got to think about what we want to be three, five, ten years from now. Maybe a little different, but that's okay. What's the old saying? Never let a good crisis go to waste. So let's keep innovating. Let's keep thinking about how we can do things to transform lives, transform our community. You know, I'm all in. So thank you, Nadja and Amar, for having me on your show and allowing me to rattle on. I don't have anybody in my office. I'm by myself. Well, I don't have any handlers telling me that I shouldn't be saying certain things. So you might have to edit this. I don't know. Thank you all. That's really a beautiful note to end on. And I am struck that we just had a conversation with four people who wouldn't have been here 50 years ago. And it was a great conversation. So thank you. That's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good turn. Many thanks to the University Teaching and Learning Center that provided the recording studio, to Ashley Scott, who did our logo, to Lloyd International Honors College, to University Communications, including art production team Matt Bryant and Ben Peterson. 